Hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Indiana Bondcast, the Indiana Bond Bank's uh, podcast on all things public finance. And we continue our Leaders in Public Finance series with our, I guess it's our Isaiah Thomas episode. It's episode 11 for sports fans out there. So we made it to our 11th episode. And joining us uh, is our guest, Nathan Flynn. Nathan, welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And Nathan is here to talk to us about how uh, self-described uh, geeks fit into the public finance industry, in particular, those who are not natural networkers or, or naturally outgoing. And so what qualifies Nathan to talk about that is his nearly 25 years of experience in the public finance sector. Um, he is with currently with managing director with public finance group at Key Bank Capital Markets, where he is based in Indianapolis. He mainly focuses on public finance transactions centering around high-level quantitative assignments, including those involving interest rate derivatives and P3s. So yeah, if we didn't get into geek early, I mean, interest rate derivatives gets us right there, doesn't it, Nathan? So right in. Yeah, let's just <laughs> let's just jump right in. So and thanks for thinking of our podcast as a platform to talk all things geek. I appreciate that. So maybe start with how does a the self-described um, you know, wonk, geek, get into public finance. Tell us about your journey. Sure. So, I, you know, I think my journey was probably similar to a lot of the folks that are in public finance and who became lifers in public finance, and it was completely accidental. Um, so my first job out of undergrad, I was an economics major, um, and I went into, I worked, I was working at Merrill Lynch as a personal finance consultant. And there were a lot of aspects about the job, but what I really wanted, what I was really looking for was a, of a, was a job that had more analysis and more of a quantitative um, bend to it. And so a coworker of mine had gone um, into public finance um, uh, from, you know, the same industry. And I was, you know, describing to them kind of what I was looking for. And, and there was an opening in a public finance group in Chicago, which is where I was living at the time. Um, I interviewed for a job that I really didn't have a good understanding of what was required of it. And, uh, and that's how it all started. So, uh, and 25, almost 25 years later, uh, was one of the best decisions I made. Wow. That's amazing. And it's a great lesson. Just sometimes you got to, you're never going to be fully ready, right? You just have to step out and take that, that opportunity when it comes to you. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of fits with the, you know, the, when I talk to whether it's my kids or, or, you know, other people who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. Uh, it kind of fits into my philosophy of it's more of a, you know, more of a filter approach. It's, um, it's important to, I think it's, it's as important to know what you don't want to do as it is what you do want to do. Um, so that's, that was definitely a part of my process. That's amazing. And you, so you've been in the industry for 25 years, you started, just got your foot in the door and you've, you know, as we've talked before, you've talked about, you're not a natural networker, um, you know, not naturally outgoing. So how did you, I guess, continue to grow and develop and find those relationships and, and make that, you know, kind of make your journey and carve your journey where maybe that's where you want to, you like doing the work, the quantitative stuff, the stuff you really right. enjoy the most, and yet you've got to kind of nurture that career. Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, one of the things early on um, that I recognized was the importance of um, of teaming up with people that had a different skill set than I had, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and, and, and 
you know, to be clear, I, I made a go of it trying to be outgoing and, and network and things of that nature. And I just realized that that was not my skill set. My strength was, was, you know, on the quantitative side of things, on the structuring side of things. And so what I always have tried to do throughout my career is connect myself with people who have that different skill set. I always think of it as a Venn diagram. Um, I'm a big Venn diagram guy. So, right, you put all your skills in a circle, you put someone else's skills in a circle, and where they overlap is where you share skills. And my goal is to always have as little of an overlap as possible um, wow. with, with uh, the, you know, the people I'm working with. Um, and so that's that's just kind of been my my strategy. And, um, you know, I, I certainly um, have had the opportunity to work with a lot of great people uh, over my career. Um, and I think, you know, another another approach that has been successful for me is recognizing, again, who the you know, who who. Who would be a good mentor? Who would be a good partner? Um, you know, and 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 sticking with them. Nice. On the mentorship side, Nathan, have you <clears throat> proactively just directly asked, "Hey, I like what you do, or how you operate, or I'd I'd love to be where you're at someday. Would you mentor me, or is it more just a fostering of a relationship that happens over time, kind of naturally? How have you approached mentorship? Yeah. I would say, yeah, I mean, the former approach would require, you know, direct communication. And so, <laughs> so no, I think it's, it's definitely been more the latter, right? It's, it's yeah. been more, um, you know, again, it's just, just kind of a natural progression of the working relationship with folks. Um, but, it, but I, I will say that I have gone um, uh, and, and made efforts um, because I have worked at, at several different shops. And so I've, I've made sure to continue to foster those relationships with my mentors even after I've left and, and um, you know, that, I, you know, networking is, is super important for anyone in any industry, in particular public finance, because it is such a niche industry. And I would say that is the one aspect of networking that I think I've gotten right um, is continuing to, you know, to keep up those relationships with, with mentors from other, from other firms. And it's, that has been very fruitful for me. That's fantastic. I, I like, it sounds like you just treat it as a relationship, a conversation. You don't go into it necessarily wanting a thing from them every time you talk or needing a, what am I going to get out of this transaction? It's more, it sounds more like almost like what you and I are doing. Like, let's talk about public finance or the next thing or careers. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely more, I guess, more organic. Um, okay. and, and I have great, I, I have great respect. There are people out there that are master networkers. You've, you've had several of them, um, that I know and, and respect, in this leadership series and they take a different approach to networking and that, that works great for them. Um, uh, for me, it's just not a, uh, it's just not a natural fit for me. And so I, yeah, I, I, I tend to have it be just more of a, of a natural uh, kind of organic conversation type relationship. That's the beauty. I think of this series as you can, it, I think it demonstrates, right? Success. There's not one beaten path to success. You can take the Nathan Flynn route. You can take the Herschel Frierson route as we've had on the, show has very different approach to networking and you both do fantastic work. And so that's, um, I think it's good to hear, hear from you, Nathan, for our other uh, students out there who are, who are quants or want to just get in and, and do the number numbers work, you know, speaking of the numbers, municipal finance, tell us, so you got in 25 years ago, what do you love? You know, what don't you love about it? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, one thing that I've loved about my journey in, in particular is that I've I've really worked on every kind of structure and with every type of client um, during my career. So, 
Um, and that that is really, um, you know, that that has just kind of kept my interest. Every you know, every day is kind of a new day, right? Because you're you're always learning, um, whether it's you know, learning about a structure, learning about a client, etc. Um, so, you know, I, I think in general, a common thread for anyone who's working in public finance is that they like seeing the fruits of their labor. Um, and it's weird. I think I've picked up on the fact that a lot of us in the industry uh, are into landscaping and gardening. Um, and I'm, I'm no different. I love, I love to mow, right? You, you, you start off, you see all this uncut grass and every pass, you can see the progress that you're making. And then, you know, when you're done, you get off the mower and, and you see what you've done um, and you can see it directly. And so, you know, it's, um, it's great knowing that when you drive by a municipal building, when you drive over a bridge, um, you know, when you put your coins uh, or credit card into a parking meter that, you know, you played a role in that tangible thing being done. And so, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed that about the career, having that, you know, having those tangible results. Um, and I, I think where I'm a little bit different is most, the, the other thing that most folks talk about is that they love the people, right? Uh, they love their, their coworkers and the relationships. And I, I do love that aspect, but what I really love is the numbers. I just, you know, I mean, if you, uh, you know, if, if I, you know, if you gave me a choice between, um, you know, going to uh, an event or to a meeting versus being in my office for 12 hours and just kind of crunching through a model, I, I'd, I'd pick the model. I just, uh, I love that aspect of it. And, um, and so that's, you know, one of the most rewarding parts about municipal finance and public finance to me has been the opportunity to apply that skill set in a meaningful way. Wow. It's funny you say that. I, and I know that probably is your, you know, the superpower, you love your numbers. And yet I think, you know, think about a lot of the folks I've met since I started the bond bank, you, and you're just one of the better teachers and communicators of difficult concepts. Like, and so I want to share that with you because I, it probably is easier for you to just close your door and do the numbers, but you've either developed or you just, you're naturally good at communicating, uh, in very simplistic forms. Uh, I mean, concepts, I think we've talked about that have helped kind of give me that aha moment sometimes. So I don't know if, if you know, you do that or you can speak to that, but that's certainly something I've noticed. You're a very good communicator of fairly high technical, um, aspects of public finance. I appreciate that market. It's, um, it's definitely something I've worked on that I've a skill that I've tried to hone over the years. Um, and, um, in, in, you know, it, it's, it's in part of a recognition that, um, having information, um, you know, having a potential solution is only meaningful if you can communicate it to other people in particular, the people who are going to be the decision makers, right? Because, you know, I, I can come up with the most elegant, uh, uh, you know, solution out there. But if I can't give that information to a decision maker for them to take action on it, it, it really doesn't mean anything. Um, and I would say that um, it's, you know, it's a result of, of uh, some personality traits that probably aren't the most healthy, which uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessive compulsive. Um, I can't multitask. Mm -hmm. And I constant I constantly talk to myself. And so, you know, um, I'm the weirdo who doesn't turn on the radio uh, or any sort of music or a podcast when he drives to work. I just like to talk through things. And it's it's really um, a result of, um, I very early on was um, in college was interested in 
the perspective or 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 the, the the dichotomy that you know two people could digest the exact same information and come away with two completely different conclusions. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it's always bothered me when I can't I, I don't you know when I can't understand why someone has the perspective that they have. And so I'll spend a lot of time just obsessing over okay how how did I look at this information and come away with this conclusion. Now, let me put myself in their shoes. What were the steps that they took to come to their conclusion? Um, and so um, it's really just, um, you know, it's almost when I, when I walk through how I'm going to explain something or, or present material, um, you know, I, I, I just kind of go through it a bunch of different times. I take different paths. Um, and, I, you know, I often find that we can't talk about um, you know, interest rate risk until we've talked about an interest rate forecast. You know, there's a certain order of things that just make sense to people. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the approach that I've always taken is, you know, put myself in their shoes, hear it for the first time as I'm saying it for the millionth time, and just go through that progression to where, you know, now it starts to make sense in my own head. Fantastic. So for folks listening to the Indiana podcast, we've got Nathan Flynn here from KeyBank Capital Markets. And a great learning point there is just right keep developing those skills and it i mean really that that how to communicate what may be intuitive to you and i know we've sat down over like here's a huge numbers run and you're able to say okay out of all this sea you know of data let's here's the one fish like let's look at this one and that's why this this one's a pivot point because if it does this then this and that you know you're very good at kind of picking out some of those key key points. And so I think that's something we can all work on of just how to, how to communicate what you do. Cause that curse of knowledge, no matter the industry, right. Public finance, uh, was in housing before I mean, community development, like you get in so deep sometimes, whether you go home to your spouse or friends or your constituency, if you can't communicate it in a way that uh, is digestible, you've kind of lost already from the jump. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's also about not communicating it the way that you want to communicate it, but but doing it in the way that's understandable to your audience, right? So, uh, yeah. and, 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 and part of it's reading the room. I mean, sometimes you get in the meeting and and you've got a five minute runway of how you're gonna go through this concept and you immediately recognize that the decision maker, you know what, Mark's a little distracted today. So I've got three minutes. And so on the fly, I've got to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I reorder things um, to make sure that you know, that, that I get there and, you know, different people in the room are going to have different concerns. And so you also have to um, make sure that if there's five people receiving your message, that there's something in it for each of them. Wow. Wow. I know we're kind of off on a tangent. I'm curious though, as you've evolved over your career and you've seen over these past 25 years, have you seen the way the information is presented need to change? I'm thinking like fewer words, more pictures or, or those types of things. Yeah, for sure. So when I when I got in the industry, we just um, it was all pitch books. It was all um, slide decks, and mm. uh, I spent so many hours at midnight binding. You know, we had every office had their own binding machine. So um, you know, <laughs> so much paper. Um, and then you know, so obviously from a technology standpoint, we we moved more towards towards taking those pitch books and having them be more electronic. Um, you know, whether, you know, you know, in the in-person and then obviously with, you know, with what's happened over the last few years, now we've moved to this virtual setup. 
Um, I, I, and, and so it, it just changes the way that information is, is relayed. Um, I, email was, was kind of a game changer. Mm -hmm. I, I'm more of a phone person, especially as it relates to, you know, kind of communicating concepts. Um, so, you know, as you know, it, a lot of people kind of think it's odd if you call them now, right. They, they, you know, they prefer the email and I understand why, uh, so I spend, you know, again, that's, that's another aspect where I, I did, I'm not, I'm not generally a real uh, strong person when it comes to writing or written communication. So it takes me forever to write emails. Um, but that's just something that, you know, that I've had to work on. Just having a great conversation here with Nathan Flynn. Nathan, I'd be curious what you think your municipal superpower is. That's a question we've never asked anybody and you're, skilled at a lot so what do you think your your municipal superpower would be yeah i, I would say it's it's uh likely a topic we've already touched on which is my ability to to explain complex financial concepts in an understandable manner but it, i guess i would add to that and say that um a, a big part of that is the passion that i have for the for the subject matter um mm -hmm. because i think i think that really shines through um i sometimes make the joke that you know, for lack of a better hobby, uh, you know, this, you know, numbers are my hobby, public finance is my hobby, but, you know, I mean, it's really true. Um, it's, you know, I think the, the best way to get someone interested in something is to demonstrate for them that, that you're interested as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that, I think that's, that, that is certainly, um, that is certainly a big part of, of, you know, why I feel like I'm able to kind of, you know, communicate with folks on these complex, these complex topics as they can see that I actually care, um, you know, about, about what we're covering. Yeah. And maybe share a little bit more in terms of like how that passion plays out in some of the, the more neat projects that you've taken part in. Are there any of them in particular that jump out that we got to apply that passion and, and that those communication skills and really get something over the line that was maybe a little more challenging than normal? I would say there are two in particular um, that come to mind. The first is um, we served as advisor to uh, the city of Chicago on its uh, parking meter transaction when I was at William Blair and Company. Um, and in that transaction, they effectively, it was a long-term leasing concession of their on-street parking system, a, a public-private partnership, or P3 as they're known. It, it was a very complex transaction, um, but it was also very, um, very structuring heavy, uh, involved a lot of, of analysis. And um, so, you know, one of the one of the things that we were tasked with doing was coming up with an estimated value. We had to effectively project for the city how much we thought uh, the bidders would would bid. How much? What, what would the value be for them? Wow. And so uh, we developed a, a probability weighted multivariable analysis. So, <laughs> right, if, when you think about what's the value of a parking system of a, of a meter parking system. There are tons of assumptions or tons of inputs that go into, um, uh, you know, determining how much it's worth. Um, and each, so for each of those inputs, uh, we first identified the inputs, things like inflation, elasticity of demand, population growth in the city of Chicago. Um, wh what would what would parking supply be? What would the impact of potential impact of things like self-driving technology? Um, things of that nature. So all these different inputs. And then we came up with some assumptions. What would happen if inflation was three and a half percent? What would happen if inflation is two and a half percent? 
and each of those had a, a probability of, of likelihood. Obviously, for each input, it added up to 100. But as you add on more and more variables and potential outcomes, you get an immense number of, of outputs. And so, for instance, if there are 10 inputs of value, and each of those inputs have four different possibilities, that's 10,000 outputs, <laughs> right? So, um, so we, you know, we, we developed this model, uh, and then we, we basically did a, a standard distribution of bell curve, mm -hmm. and we estimated for the city that, that you know, we were 85% confident that the, the, the bids would come in within a certain range. And then because it was a public bid, because, um, you know, you were taking the highest bid after you pre-qualified the bidders, you know, we felt that the bid, the winning bid would come in towards the top end of our range. And, um, you know, we, the top end of our, our range was 1.2 billion and the winning bid was 1.15 billion. Oh my gosh. Uh, we were really, yeah, that was really, the model itself was neat. It was also neat to see that, that we were actually right, you know, kind of the, the proof. <laughs> it would have been a problem if it had come in as, you know, like $20 million. That's right. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So then the other neat, the other neat part of that project was once we um, selected a winning bidder, once the city selected a winning bidder, we effectively had to write a contract for a concept that had never been done. Um, and so, you know, the, the ability to charge people parking uh, for parking in a parking meter is actually a police power and you can't delegate a police power to a private entity. So we had to come up with a contract that allowed the city to continue to make all the decisions but you know, compensate when, they've, when they had reduced the value of the contract to the private entity that had already paid them, um, and also get compensation for when they increased the value of the contract for more than they had uh, been paid for up front. So it was this very, we had a lot of conversations. I worked hand in hand with the city's council to you know, marry the math with, with the contract language, um, which, you know, I mean, that was, that's a real interesting exercise to get a numbers person that doesn't like words and a lawyer, you know, a lawyer who, who likes words, but not so much numbers. Um, and then we, you know, we tested it out with, with the other side and just, you know, really kind of from, from scratch came up with a very long contract on it, on a financial structure that hadn't been utilized yet in the state. So that was, that was really neat. Um, and I'd say the last part of the, the project that I really enjoyed was the fact that it was, you know, all encompassing. It truly was over a year long project from start to close. And it took up a vast majority of my time and the other people that were on the team. And I, I think I mentioned before, you know, I'm the world's worst multitasker. Um, and it's, and it's true. So like, you know, the, that's why I think that's one of the reasons I like the projects that I like where, you know, we can just go down that rabbit hole and just, you know, just start going nuts on the whiteboard and, and before you know it, 12 hours has gone by. And that's, that's great. Cause you're still, you know, you're still chugging along. Um, so yeah. it was really, yeah. I mean, I, I remember that time frame very well. It was, uh, it was a really neat project to work on. Wow. Um, so you, I was going to ask, so it was about a year long from when you got engaged to when it, it closed. It was, it, I would say it was a year it, when it really got intense, there was about a year long time period, but the project itself from the first conversation with the city of Chicago was, you know, well over, it was probably a year and a half to two years wow. uh, in terms of the process. Um, so, and, and a lot of the people that I have in the industry that I'm still the closest with happen to be people that worked um, on that transaction. Cause you just have that, you know, you just you you form that bond. It's like being on a sports team, right? You know, you either love them or hate them by that point. By right. The exactly. Yeah, so exactly. So, 
Yeah. Um, and then the, I guess the other the other project that I'd point to was um, when so I I started a swap advisory practice at William Blair. Um, you know, we saw a need. We had a lot of clients that that had interest rate derivatives and and they just needed help kind of understanding how they fit for them and, and what have you. So um, during the financial crisis of, uh, of two, you know, the late 2000s, um, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and they were a common swap provider. Um, and so we had a client, a swap advisory client. It was a CCRC in the Chicago area. Um, the swap that they had in place with Lehman Brothers was working very well for them. It was the exact structure they needed. But all of a sudden, in a time of financial crisis, you know, their counterparty was bankrupt. Now, the good news for them was that they actually owed money on the swap. There was a negative mark to market on it, which oddly enough protected them um, because having a bankrupt entity owe you money is a problem, but owing a bankrupt entity, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the good news for them. But, you know, it was things were happening very very quickly, there was a group at Lehman Brothers that was effectively trying to clean up as many of these transactions as possible. So they were putting immense pressure on, on our client to, you know, maybe accept some terms that were maybe market, but they weren't necessarily that we would have put our client in a much worse position. And so mm. being able to help, being able to help our client make the right decision, it was a decision that resulted in no transaction. It resulted in no fees for, you know, for the firm that I was working for at the time, but it was just, it was just the right, it was just the right decision for them. And it was just an area of expertise that, you know, it, you know, that's, that's why they hired us. That's why we were there was, you know, to, to bring in that, that area of expertise that they didn't have. So I, I felt really good about that transaction because I felt like we really added value to, to someone who needed it and someone who relied on us. Yeah, having that niche expertise, you get to kind of come in and do all the the neat projects like that, and that's yeah, that sounds sure. like one where, if Chicago was a year, that this other project with Lehman sounds like it was probably much more time intensive and and shorter because need to get fixed more quickly. That's right. Yeah, and pretty high stakes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, 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 it's kind of interesting. I I was thinking about one of your questions earlier, um, you know, about my path and. I, the P3s and the swap advisories, I mean, I think it illustrates that um, I've worked on a lot of different types of projects. I've been, I've definitely been a jack of all trades. Um, and for, you know, for, so for a long time, I, I felt kind of, you know, there's the saying out there, jack of all trades, master of none, right? right. I always used to feel like, am I doing the right thing professionally? You know, spreading myself out, working with a bunch of different, you know, industry groups and a bunch of different product groups. Um but I actually, so then I looked up the quote and the full quote is Jack of all trades, master of none, still better than master of one. What? So, yeah. Yeah. So that is, Hey, <laughs> you heard it here first. That's fantastic. I did not first. know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I, that, that absolved me of my, of my career guilt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's truly like been one of the, one of the neat things to me professionally is, be, is being able to do a bunch of different things, uh, you know, for a bunch of different client types. Um, it just, you know, it just makes every day an interesting day. Yeah. I know you're a baseball fan. You like the guy on the field who can play, you know, if you need him to pick up the glove and play second. Always short. my favorite player. That, yeah. The utility player the is utility, always my favorite player. Utility players. Yeah. Like, where, where is he suiting up today? Is he, yeah, he's right. on the left, right? It's just, oh, and that's great. I think that's great career advice for anyone who's listening. It, you know, they're, 
specializing is there's nothing wrong with specializing. Certainly if you get, um, fall in love and, and get down deep in a path, um, a lot of need for that in this industry. And then talking to folks here like you, Nathan, it's, you know, being available and saying yes to things and kind of picking them up on the fly, learning them on the fly, using your other skills, um, you know, resources like that. I across sectors. I know when I've worked with folks, like it's, it's always nice to have people you can call on who, will, who are willing to jump in. And as you said, try, yeah. try different things. And, and I think, yeah, I think as people are getting started in their careers, they, they focus a little too much on, I have to be like an investment banking. I have to be in the right industry group, or I have to work for the right banker. Mm. And, and certainly there's value in that, but I, I think there's more value in just whatever role you're in, just doing it really well. Um, because a, that's, you know, a lot of those skills are portable. Um, if you do make a switch out of that industry group or, or, you know, that role, but be the, you know, the people that you're working with often will end up in, in different places, different firms, you know, different industries. And I, I've, you know, I, everyone told me early in my career, I wish I had listened that, you know, it's, it's not, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, it, it, at the time I misinterpreted that. Now I understand that it's, you know, there are people that you'll work with your first year of work and you may not think that you, they'll ever impacts you. And then 25 years later, you're at a conference and you run into them. It's just, it's kind of amazing the way it works. Uh, and so, yeah, just, you know, maybe not obsessing so much about where you started, but just doing, you know, doing your best at whatever, you know, whatever position you're in. Yeah, that's the truth. And being okay to, it, it, rarely, I think you can speak to this as well. I know in my career, you figure out pretty quickly, like if you wait to have all the answers and all the facts and everything and feel like you're confident to then make that leap, it's just never going to come. Sometimes you just have to, to trust what you've got. And if somebody asks you to do something or, or see something in you to, to take that step, that there's, there's a group there, there's a faith there that you can kind of step out and learn it, learn it as you go and put yourself in yeah, a position. Sure. To so. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Nathan, I know you also do a lot of work in the community. You volunteer, um, quite a bit and don't often, uh, kind of get to go down this route, but I would love with you cause you've done some you know, really involved, um, community volunteer work. I know it's some, um, even sports organizations. So I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about how you balance the public finance work that you do, the numbers, the ones, the zeros, and, and kind of what you do outside to, to give back and continue to get balance that, that work, that work-life balance. Yeah, I, I definitely, um, it, it, I've definitely found that, uh, there is a balance there between work life, but it's important to find that balance. And that balance looks different for everybody. But I, I definitely, there's a couple organizations outside of public finance that, that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, the first is an organization called Reach for Youth. It's a nonprofit here in Indianapolis. Um, and it basically uh, assists at, at risk uh, you know, teens and young adults. Uh, great organization. Um, I got into it because a friend of mine um, uh, was a board member and, and, you know, I just started going to events and, and kind of find a, found a passion for it. Um, and it just, you know, it, it was a great way, you know, you've got all the, you know, the stress and the, and the, uh, the time that you spend professionally. And, and, and if you're not stressed out professionally, you're, you're probably doing it wrong, right? I believe there should be, you know, right? there, should, there should be a little stress professionally. So it was just a great way to kind of give back to the community, um, uh, and it was the type of organization where, uh, because it's so much of it, they've got this thing called Teen Court, which is a, like a juvenile diversion program. But oh, wow. 
but you can't really volunteer for team court. It's for attorneys and judges. Those are the people that they kind of involved, and I'm neither. Um, and you know, the other another one of their big uh, another one of their big programs is counseling. Again, you can't really be a volunteer counselor. So right. you know, the, the way that you know, I, I identified as an organization I thought was was a great asset to the community. But the only way for me really to get involved was as a board member. So I was on the board for several years. Um, I termed out um, and, and look forward. I've still stayed involved with the organization. And once enough times passes, I look forward to potentially getting back on that board because it was really something that that I thought was, you know, was, you know, not only just good for me, but but I felt like I was adding something to the organization. Nice. Um, and then I also spent when my kids are a little bit older now, so they've kind of aged out of youth sports. But um, while they were younger, I was very involved in our in their youth sports programs. Uh, there's I, I live in Westfield, Indiana, and so the the youth sports program there is called WYSI, and uh, got very involved both uh, helping run the rec baseball program as well as the youth cross country program. And I'm just I'm a big advocate of of community based sports. Um, you know, it, it, just the ability for, you know, for the kids to kind of interact with other youth in the community, form those bonds, um, you know, get kind of meaningful mem mentorship from adults. Um, and, and I think a big part of it was me. I just, I enjoy kind of passing on knowledge and, and teaching. Um, and so that, you know, with, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, teach a kid how to go to the major leagues. Uh, but I, but I can certainly, you know, teach them, you know, kind of some baseline knowledge about not only the right way to play baseball, but the, you know, the right way to, to be on a team and the right way to be a teammate. Um, uh, and so, yeah, that was, that was a great opportunity. And then I, again, I was also involved with our youth cross country program. Um, I, and, and to me, you know, cross country is the ultimate individual sport as well as the ultimate team sport. You're not, you're not competing over positions. You don't right. have to worry about who the starting quarterback is. Or the, you know, everyone thinks their kid should be a shortstop or a pitcher in baseball, right? You don't have that in cross country. Right. Um, but once you cross the finish line, you're also the world's best teammate. You're not, you know, you're, the only thing you're doing is you're all running the same course against that same clock. Um, and so we just want everyone to, you know, get a PR every time they run. And it, it was really cool to see kids. Um, there, there was a, so there was a kid, I, I would, it would embarrass him if I, if I said his name, not that there's any danger of him hearing this podcast, but, right, right, right. <laughs> but we'll, we'll call him Will. And, you know, so he started running when he was eight years old and he was um, what, what I would call an attaboy runner. He's the kid that you're like, oh, nice job, Will. Like, you know, you came, you know, you kind of came in last, but we you know we're proud of you, nice effort. Um, but he just, you know, I, I, Hopefully we coached him the right way. We didn't ruin his love of running. And he kept every year getting a little bit better and a little bit better. He is going into his senior season on the Westfield High School cross country team, which is a really competitive team. Um, and, and he's one of the, he's going to go into his senior year as one of their varsity runners. Wow. And, and, you know, it, just to see, you know, this was a kid again that like, you know, no one would have ever looked at him an eight-year-old and said, we got to have this kid on our high school team. Let's develop this kid as a runner. Yeah. Um, and so it's just really neat to see that love kind of bloom over the years and, and you know, to, to know that, again, I played a very small part in helping him achieve, you know, what he got to today. So that, that, that's been a really neat experience. It's also really cool to be in the community and have a kid come up and call you coach. So that is, wow. Yeah. 
I mean, that, that right there is worth it. So that is super cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to guess that when you were really deeply involved with youth sports, the parents probably got never had as many spreadsheets as they had when you were. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's no doubt. There's, there's no doubt. And, and I will say that was, you know, one of the things, one of the things we tried to do with baseball in particular was, uh, you know, when I moved to Westfield uh, 16 years ago, it was a little bit of a bedroom community kind of on the smaller side, certainly as it relates to the North side of Indianapolis and it's really grown. And so it went from a kind of a, of a, a small town youth baseball league to needing some, some standards and um, some protocols. And so, you know, that's right up my alley. So yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found, I found some like-minded uh, Excel nerds and, and uh, yeah, we, we threw a lot of spreadsheets at folks, but yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I, I've just, my kids are a little younger than yours and have had the chance this year to get into some, some coaching on, um, on some youth sports. And it's great. The commissioner of, of the league we did was, uh, he's like, look at this age, give them fun, teach them fundamentals. And hopefully they meet a, a friend, friend or two, like those yeah. three, three F's. Um, we're not looking to send kids into right. The pros yep. or the majors like it, this just, engender the love. So they want to come back next year, teach them the fundamentals. Like you said, and how to be on a team for a lot of them, it's maybe their first time on a team. So yeah. it's. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the things that we did that I thought was great and that I was proud of is we, we, um, we took away, we, we randomly seeded the postseason tournament. And oh. so we stopped, we stopped keeping track of regular season games. Uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't ask the coaches to report them to us. Um, and we just said, look, your focus on a regular season game ought to be developing your kids and not really worrying about the scoreboard. And I say that as one of the most competitive people, like if we're playing checkers, I fully expect to beat you. <laughs> even if, you know, even if you're the world's best checker player, like I want to, so, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, everybody gets a trophy, but it's more, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And what you're trying to accomplish with an eight-year-old is to make a better player. Yep. Maybe not so much worry about, you know, if you won your 10th game. Yep. So, yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, Nathan, it's been fantastic having you as a guest for this uh, episode of the Indiana Bondcast. It's our 11th episode and of the public finance leader series. And again, just great having you. Your history has been uh, varied and diverse. And now with Key Bank, Key Capital Markets, Key Bank Capital Markets, Managing Director in the Public Finance Group. I appreciate your, your time here on the podcast and uh, Gosh, I've learned from you. I think I've said this already that I've learned from you during my tenure here at the Bomb Bank. And so I, I speak for many I know who are listening to this who've been influenced. I'm not going to call you well, coach, but yeah, I, I appreciate that, Mark. And I, it was, this was fun. I appreciated the opportunity to do it. Fantastic. Well, for the Indiana Bond Bank, this is Mark Wolner signing off, inviting you to listen to future episodes of the Public Finance Leaders Series here on the Indiana Bondcast. To get those, just uh, like, subscribe, anywhere you get podcasts, the Indiana Bondcast can be found. Uh, until next time, uh, we are signing off. Take care. <laughs>